0: Hello, and welcome to Another World Audiobooks. Well, Frankenstein does it again. If you haven't read this book, I bet anything that you're not expecting what's coming in this episode. This week, The Monster Speaks. Quite eloquently. Are you liking the podcast? I'd love to hear from you. Sometimes it kind of feels like I'm just putting this out there and I have no idea what you guys are thinking. So check out Another World Audiobooks on all the social medias or leave a rating and review on iTunes. If you love audiobooks as much as I do, and I think you do since you're listening to this podcast, you're a part of Another World. We're a family, so let's stay in touch. A huge shout out again to our awesome patrons over at patreon.com slash audiobooks. Remember, if you want to say in what book we do after Frankenstein, head over to patreon.com slash audiobooks, and you can join the exclusive group that will have a say in what book we do next. Thanks so much for listening today. But enough of that. Without further ado, I give you Frankenstein. Chapter 9. Nothing
1: is more painful to the human mind than, after the feelings have been worked up by a quick succession of events, the dead calmness of an action and certainty which follows and deprives the soul both of hope and fear. Justine died, she rested, and I was alive. The blood flowed freely in my veins, but a weight of despair and remorse pressed on my heart which nothing could remove. Sleep fled from my eyes i wandered like an evil spirit for i had committed deeds of mischief beyond description horrible and more much more i persuaded myself was yet behind yet my heart overflowed with kindness and the love of virtue i had begun life with benevolent intentions and thirsted for the moment when i should put them in practice and make myself useful to my fellow beings now all was blasted Instead of that serenity of conscience which allowed me to look back upon the past with self-satisfaction, and from thence to gather promise of new hopes, I was seized by remorse and the sense of guilt, which hurried me away, to a hell of intense torture such as no language can describe. This state of mind preyed upon my health, which had perhaps never entirely recovered from the first shock it had sustained. I shunned the face of man. All sound of joy or complacency was torture to me. Solitude was my only consolation. Deep dark, death-like solitude. My father observed with pain the alteration perceptible in my disposition and habits, and endeavoured by arguments deduced from the feelings of his serene conscience and guiltless life to inspire me with fortitude and awaken in me the courage to dispel the dark cloud which brooded over me. "'Do you think, Victor,' said he, "'that I do not suffer also? No one could love a child more than I loved your brother.' Tears came into his eyes as he spoke. But it is not a duty to the survivors that we should refrain from augmenting their unhappiness by an appearance of immoderate grief. It is also a duty owed to yourself, for excessive sorrow prevents improvement or enjoyment, and even the discharge of daily usefulness without which no man is fit for society. This advice, although good, was totally inapplicable to my case. I should have been the first to hide my grief and console my friends if remorse had not mingled its bitterness and terror its alarm with my other sensations now i could only answer my father with a look of despair and endeavor to hide myself from his view about this time we retired to our house at the this change was particularly agreeable to me the shutting of the gates regularly at ten o'clock and the impossibility of remaining on the lake after that hour had rendered our residence within the walls of geneva very irksome to me i was now free Often, after the rest of the family had retired for the night, I took the boat and passed many hours upon the water. Sometimes, with my sails set, I was carried by the wind, and sometimes, after rowing into the middle of the lake, I left the boat to pursue its own course and gave way to my own miserable reflections. I was often tempted, when all was at peace around me, and I, the only unquiet thing that wandered restless in a scene so beautiful and heavenly, if I except some bat or the frogs whose harsh and interrupted croakings was heard only when I approached the shore. Often, I say, I was tempted to plunge into the silent lake, that the waters might close over me and my calamities forever. But I was restrained when I thought of the heroic and suffering Elizabeth, whom I tenderly loved, and whose existence was bound up in mine. I thought also of my father and surviving brother. Should I, by my base desertion, leave him exposed and unprotected to the malice of the fiend whom I let loose among them? At these moments I wept bitterly, and wished that peace would revisit my mind only that I might afford them consolation and happiness, but that could not be. Remorse extinguished every
2: hope. I had been the author of unalterable evils, and I lived in daily fear lest the monster whom I had created should perpetrate some new wickedness. I had an obscure
1: feeling that all was not over, and that he would still commit some signal crime which by its enormity should almost efface the recollection of the past. There was always scope for fear, so long as anything I loved remained behind. My abhorrence of this fiend cannot be conceived. When I thought of him, I gnashed my teeth, my eyes became inflamed, and I ardently wished to extinguish that life which I had so thoughtlessly bestowed. When I reflected on his crimes and malice, my hatred and revenge burst all bounds of moderation. I would have made a pilgrimage to the highest peaks of the Andes, could I, when there, have precipitated him to their base.' I wished to see him again, that I might wreak the utmost extent of abhorrence on his head and avenge the death of William and Justine. Her house was the house of mourning. My father's health was deeply shaken by the horror of the recent events. Elizabeth was sad and desponding. She no longer took delight in her ordinary occupations. All pleasure seemed to her sacrilege toward the dead. External woe
2: and tears, she then thought, was the just tribute she should pay to innocence so blasted and destroyed." She was no longer that happy creature who in earlier youth wandered with me on the banks of the lake and talked with ecstasy of our future prospects. The first of those sorrows which are sent to wean us from the earth had visited her, and its dimming influence quenched her dearest smiles. "'When I reflect, my dear cousin,' said she, "'on the miserable death of Justine Moritz, I no longer see the world and its works as they before appeared to me.' Before, I looked upon the accounts of vice and injustice that I read in books, or heard from others as tales of ancient days or imaginary evils. At least they were remote and more familiar to reason than to the imagination. But now misery has come home, and men appear to me as monsters thirsting for each other's blood. Yet I am certainly unjust. Everybody believed that poor girl to be guilty. And if she could have committed the crime for which she suffered, assuredly she would have been the most depraved of human creatures— for the sake of a few jewels, to have murdered the son of her benefactor and friend, a child whom she had nursed from its birth, and appeared to love as if it had been her own. I could not consent to the death of any human being, but certainly I should have thought such a creature unfit to remain in the society of men. But she was innocent, I know, I feel she was innocent. You are of the same opinion, and that confirms me. "'Alas, Victor, when falsehood can look so like the truth, "'who can assure themselves of certain happiness? "'I feel as if I were walking on the edge of a precipice "'towards which thousands are crowding "'and endeavouring to plunge me into the abyss. "'William and Justine were assassinated, "'and the murderer escapes. "'He walks about the world free and perhaps respected. "'But even if I were condemned to suffer on the scaffold "'for the same crimes, I would not change places with such a wretch.' I listened
1: to this discourse
2: with the extremest agony. I, not
1: indeed, but in effect, was the true murderer. Elizabeth read my anguish in my countenance,
0: and, kindly taking my hand, said,
2: My dearest friend, you must calm yourself. These events have affected me, God knows how deeply, but I am not so wretched as you are. There is an expression of despair, and sometimes of revenge in your countenance, that makes me tremble. Dear Victor, banish these dark passions. Remember the friends around you, who center all their hopes in you. Have we lost the power of rendering you happy? Ah, while we love, while we are true to each other, here in this land of peace and beauty, your native country, we may reap every tranquil blessing. What can disturb our peace?
1: And could not such words from her whom I fondly prized, before every other gift of fortune suffice to chase away the fiend that lurked in my heart. Even as she spoke, I drew near to her, as if in terror, lest at that very moment the destroyer had been near to rob me of her. Thus, not the tenderness of friendship, nor the beauty of earth, nor of heaven, could redeem my soul from woe. The very accents of love were ineffectual. I was encompassed by a cloud which no beneficial influence could penetrate. The wounded deer dragging its fainting limbs to some untrodden brake, there to gaze upon the arrow which had pierced it, and to die, was but a type of me. Sometimes I could cope with the sullen despair that overwhelmed me, but sometimes the whirlwind passions of my soul drove me to seek by bodily exercise and my change of place some relief
2: from my intolerable sensations. It was during an access of this kind that I suddenly left my home and, bending my steps toward the near alpine valleys, sought in the magnificence, the
1: eternity of such scenes, to forget myself and my ephemeral, because-human, sorrows. My wanderings were directed towards the valley of Chamonix, I had visited it frequently during my boyhood. Six years had passed since then. I was a wreck, but naught had changed in those savage and enduring scenes. I performed the first part of my journey on horseback. I afterwards hired a mule, as the more sure-footed and least liable to receive injury on these rugged roads. The weather was fine. It was about the middle of the month of August, nearly two months after the death of Justine, that miserable epoch from which I dated all my woe the weight upon my spirit was sensibly lightened as I plunged yet deeper into the ravine of Arve. The immense mountains and precipices that overhung me on every side, the sound of the river raging among the rocks, and the dashing of the waterfalls around spoke of a power mighty as omnipotence, and I ceased to fear or to bend before any
2: being less almighty than that which had created and ruled the elements here displayed in the most terrific guise. Still, as I ascended higher, the valley assumed a more magnificent and astonishing character— Ruined castles hanging on the precipices of piney mountains, the impetuous Arve, and cottages every here and there, peeping forth from among the trees, formed a scene of singular beauty, but it was augmented and rendered sublime by the mighty Alps,
1: whose white and shining pyramids and domes towered above all, as belonging to another earth, the habitations of another race of beings. I passed the bridge of Pelissier, where the ravine which the river forms, opened before me, and I began to ascend the mountain that overhangs it. Soon after I entered the valley of Chamonix. This valley is more wonderful and sublime, but not so beautiful and picturesque as that of Savoie, through which I had just passed. The high and snowy mountains were its immediate boundaries,
2: but I saw no more ruined castles and fertile fields. Immense glaciers approached the road. I heard the rumbling thunder of the falling avalanche and marked the smoke of its passage. Mont Blanc,
1: the supreme and magnificent Mont Blanc, raised itself from the sounding Aiguilles, and its tremendous dome overlooked the valley. A tingling, long-lost sense of pleasure often
2: came across me during this journey. Some turn in the road, some new object suddenly perceived and recognized, reminded me of days gone by, and were associated with the light-hearted gaiety of boyhood. The very winds whispered in soothing accents, and maternal nature bade me weep no more. Then again, the kindly influence ceased to act. I found myself fettered again to grief and indulging in all the misery of reflection then i
1: spurred on my animal striving so to forget the world my fears and more than all myself or in a more desperate fashion i alighted and threw myself on the grass weighed down by horror and despair at length i arrived at the village of chamonix exhaustion succeeded to the extreme fatigue both of body and the mind which i had endured for a short space of time, I remained at the window, watching the pallid lightning that played over Mont Blanc, and listening to the rushing of the Arve, which pursued its noisy way beneath. The same lulling sounds acted as a lullaby to my keen sensations. When I placed my head upon my pillow, sleep crept over me. I felt it as it came and blessed the giver of oblivion. Chapter Ten. I spent the following day roaming through the valley. I stood beside the sources of the Arveyron that were slow paces advancing down from the summit of the hills to barricade the valley. The abrupt sides of vast mountains were before me. The icy wall of the glacier overhung me. A few shattered pines were scattered around, and the solemn silence of this glorious presence chamber of imperial nature was broken only by the brawling waves of the fall of some vast fragment, the thunder sound of the avalanche, or the cracking reverberated along the mountains of the accumulated ice, which through the silent working of immutable laws, was ever and anon rent and torn, as if it had been but a plaything in their hands. These sublime and magnificent scenes afforded me the greatest consolation that I was capable of receiving. They elevated me from all littleness of feeling, and although they did not remove my grief, they subdued and tranquilized it. In some degree also they diverted my mind from the thoughts over which it had brooded for the last month, I retired to rest at night. My slumbers, as it were, waited on and ministered to by the assimilance of grand shapes which I had contemplated during the day. They congregated round me, the unstained snowy mountain top, the glittering pinnacle, the pine woods and ragged bare ravine, the eagle soaring amidst the clouds. They all gathered round me and bade me be at peace. Where had they fled when the next morning I awoke? All of the soul and spiriting fled with sleep, and dark melancholy clouded every thought the rain was pouring in torrents and thick mists hid the summits of the mountains so that i even saw not the faces of those mighty friends still i would penetrate their misty veil and seek them in their cloudy retreats what were rain and storm to me my mule was brought to the door and i resolved to ascend to the summit of Monte. I remembered the effect that the view of the tremendous and ever-moving glacier had produced upon my mind when I first saw it. It had then filled me with a sublime ecstasy that gave wings to the soul and allowed it to soar from the obscure world to light and joy. The sights of the awful and majestic nature had indeed always the effect of solemnizing my mind and causing me to forget the passing cares of life. I determined to go without a guide, for I was well acquainted with the path, and the presence of another would destroy the solitary grandeur of the scene. The ascent is precipitous, but the path is cut into continual and short windings, which enable you to surmount the perpendicularity of the mountain. It was a scene terrifically desolate. In a thousand spots, the traces of the winter avalanche may be perceived, where trees lie broken and strewed on the ground, some entirely destroyed, others bent, leaning upon the jutting rocks of the mountain or traversely upon other trees. The path, as you ascend higher, is intersected by ravines of snow, down which stones continually roll from above. One of them is particularly dangerous, as the slightest sound, such as even speaking in a loud voice, produces a concussion of air sufficient to draw destruction upon the head of the speaker. The pines are not tall or luxuriant, but they are sombre and add an air of severity to the scene. I looked on the valley beneath. Vast mists were rising from the rivers which ran through it and curling in thick wreaths around the opposite mountains, whose summits were hid in the uniform clouds, while rain poured from the dark sky and added to the melancholy impression I received from the objects around me. Alas! Why does man boast of sensibilities superior to those apparent in the brute? It only renders them more necessary beings. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst, and desire, we might be nearly free. But now we are moved by every wind that blows— and a chance, word, or scene, that that word may convey to us. We rest a dream has power to poison sleep, we rise, one wandering thought pollutes the day, we feel, conceive, or reason, laugh, or weep, embrace fond woe, or cast our cares away. It is the same, for be it joy or sorrow, the path of its departure still is free, man's yesterday may ne'er be like his morrow, not may endure immutability." It was nearly noon when I arrived at the top of the ascent. For some time I sat on the rock that overlooks the sea of ice. A mist covered both that and the surrounding mountains. Presently a breeze dissipated the cloud and I descended upon the glacier. The surface is very uneven, rising like the waves of a troubled sea, descending low and interspersed by rifts that sink deep. The field of ice is almost a league in width, but I spent nearly two hours in crossing it. The opposite mountain is a bare, perpendicular rock. From the side where I now stood— Montevert was exactly opposite, at the distance of a league, and above it rose Mont Blanc in awful majesty. I remained in a recess of the rock, gazing on this wonderful and stupendous scene, a sea, or rather the vast river of ice, wound among its dependent mountains, whose aerial summits hung over its recesses. Their icy and glittering peaks shone in the sunlight over the clouds. My heart, which was before sorrowful,
2: now swelled with something like joy. I exclaimed, wandering spirits if indeed ye wander and do not rest in your narrow beds allow me this faint happiness or take me as your
1: companion away from the joys of life as i said this i suddenly beheld the figure of a man at some distance advancing toward me with superhuman speed he bounded over the crevices in the ice among which i had walked with caution his stature also as he approached seemed to exceed that of a man i was troubled a mist came over my eyes and i felt a faintness seize me but i was quickly restored by the cold gale of the mountains i perceived as the shape came nearer sight tremendous and abhorred that it was the wretch whom i had created i trembled with rage and horror resolving to wait his approach and then close with him in mortal combat He approached, his countenance bespoke bitter anguish, combined with disdain and malignity, while its unearthly ugliness rendered it almost too horrible for human eyes. But I scarcely observed this. Rage and hatred had at first deprived me of utterance, and I recovered only to overwhelm him with words expressive of furious detestation and contempt. "'Devil!' I exclaimed do you dare reproach me and do not you fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wreaked on your miserable head be gone vile insect or rather stay that i may trample you to dust and, and all that i could with the extinction of your miserable existence restore those victims whom you so diabolically murdered i expected this reception said the demon all men hate the wretched how then must i be hated who am miserable beyond all living things Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me. Thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties, only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You propose to kill me. How dare you support thus with life? Do your duty towards me, and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave them and you at peace. But if you refuse, I will glut the mar of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends." a horde monster fiend that thou art the tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes wretched devil you reproach me with your creation come on then that i may extinguish the spark which i so negligently bestowed my rage was without bounds i sprang on him impelled by all the feelings which can arm one being against the existence of another he easily eluded me and said be calm i entreat you to hear me before you give vent to your hatred on my devoted head Have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery? Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me, and I will defend it. Remember, thou hast made me more powerful than thyself, my height is superior to thine, my joints more supple, but I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature, and I will be even mild and docile to my natural lord and king, if thou wilt also perform thy part, the which thou owest me. O Frankenstein, be not equitable to every other and trample upon me alone, to whom thy justice and even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel, whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss, from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. Begone! I will not hear you! There can be no community between you and me. We are enemies. Begone, or let us try our strength in a fight in which one must fall. How can I move thee? who low entreaties cause thee to turn a favorable eye upon thy creature, who implores thy goodness and compassion? Believe me, Frankenstein, I was benevolent. My soul glowed with love and humanity. But am I not alone? Miserably alone? "'You, my creator, abhor me. What hope can I gather from your fellow creatures who owe me nothing? They spurn and hate me. The desert mountains and dreary glaciers are my refuge. I've wandered here many days. The caves of ice, which I only do not fear, are dwelling to me, and the only one which man does not grudge. These bleak skies I hail, for they are kinder to me than your fellow beings.' If the multitude of mankind knew of my existence, they would do as you do, and arm themselves for my destruction. Shall I not then hate them who abhor me? I will keep no terms with my enemies. I am miserable, and they shall share my wretchedness. Yet it is in your power to recompense me, and deliver them from an evil which it only remains for you to make so great, that not only you and your family, but thousands of others shall be swallowed up in the whirlwinds of its rage. Let your compassion be moved, and do not disdain me. Listen to my tale. When you have heard that, abandon or commiserate me, as you shall judge that I deserve. But hear me. The guilty are allowed by human laws, bloody as they are, to speak in their own defense before they are condemned. Listen to me, Frankenstein. You accuse me of murder, and yet you would, with a satisfied conscience, destroy your own creature. Oh, praise the eternal justice of man. Yet I ask you not to spare me. Listen to me, and then, if you can, and if you will, destroy the work of your hands. Why do you call to my remembrance, I rejoined, circumstances of which I shudder to reflect, that I have been the miserable origin and author? Cursed be the day, abhorred devil, in which you first saw light! Cursed, although I curse myself, be the hands that formed you! You have made me wretched beyond expression. You have left me no power to consider whether I am just to you or not. Begone, Relieve me from the sight of your detested form. Thus I relieve thee, my creator, he said, and placed his hated hands before my eyes, which I flung from me with violence. Thus I take from thee a sight which you abhor. Still thou canst listen to me, and grant me thy compassion. By the virtues that I once possessed, I demand this from you. Hear my tale. It is long and strange, and the temperature of this place is not fitting to your fine sensations. Come to the hut upon the mountain. The sun is yet high in the heaven. Before it descends to hide itself behind your snowy precipices and illuminate another world, you will have heard my story and can decide. On you it rests, whether I quit forever the neighborhood of man and lead a harmless life, or become the scourge of your fellow creatures and the author of your own speedy ruin." "'As he said this, he led the way across the ice. I followed. My heart was full, and I did not answer him, but as I proceeded I weighed the various arguments that he had used, and determined at least to listen to his tale. I was partly urged by curiosity, and compassion confirmed my resolution. I had hitherto supposed him to be the murderer of my brother, and I eagerly sought a confirmation or denial of this opinion.' For the first time, also, I felt what the duties of a creator towards his creature were, and that I ought to render him happy before I complained of his wickedness. These motives urged me to comply with his demand. We crossed the ice, therefore, and ascended the opposite rock. The air was cold, and the rain again began to descend. We entered the hut, the fiend with an air of exultation, I with a heavy heart and depressed spirits. But I consented to listen, and seating myself by the fire which my odious companion had lighted, he thus began his tale. Chapter 11. It is with considerable difficulty that I remember the original era of my being. All the events of that period appear confused and indistinct. A strange multiplicity of sensations seized me, and I saw, felt, heard, and smelt at the same time. And it was indeed a long time before I learned to distinguish between the operations of my various senses. By degrees, I remember, a stronger light pressed upon my nerves, so that I was obliged to shut my eyes. Darkness then came over me and troubled me, but hardly had I felt this when, by opening my eyes as I now supposed, the light poured in upon me again. I walked, and, I believe, descended, but I presently found a great alteration in my sensations. Before, dark and opaque bodies had surrounded me, impervious to my touch or sight, but I now found that I could wander on at liberty with no obstacles which I could not either surmount or avoid." The lights became more and more oppressive to me, and the heat wearying as I walked. I sought a place where I could receive shade. This was the forest near Ingolstadt, and here I lay by the side of a brook, resting from my fatigue, until I felt tormented by hunger and thirst. This roused me from my nearly dormant state, and I ate some berries which I found hanging on the trees or lying on the ground. I slaked my thirst at the brook, and then lying down was overcome by sleep. It was dark when I awoke i felt cold also and half frightened as it were instinctively finding myself so desolate before i had quitted your apartment on a sensation of cold i had covered myself with some clothes but these were insufficient to secure me from the dews of night i was a poor helpless miserable wretch i knew and could distinguish nothing but feeling pain invade me on all sides i sat down and wept soon a gentle light stole over the heavens and gave me a sensation of pleasure I started up and beheld a radiant form rise from among the trees. The moon. I gazed with a kind of wonder. It moved slowly, but it did my path, and I again went out in search of berries. I was still cold when under one of the trees I found a huge cloak with which I covered myself and sat down on the ground. No distinct ideas occupied my mind was confused i felt light and hunger and thirst and darkness innumerable sounds rang in my ears and on all sides various scents saluted me the only object that i could distinguish was the bright moon and i fixed my eyes on it with pleasure several changes of day and night passed and the orb of night had greatly lessened when i began to distinguish my sensations from each other I gradually saw plainly the clear stream that supplied me with drink, and the trees that shaded me with their foliage. I was delighted when I first discovered that a pleasant sound which often saluted my ears proceeded from the throat of the little winged animals who had often intercepted the light from my eyes. I began also to observe with greater accuracy the forms that surrounded me, and to perceive the boundaries of the radiant roof of light which canopied me sometimes i tried to imitate the pleasant songs of the birds but was unable sometimes i wished to express my sensations in my own mode but the uncouth and inarticulate sounds which broke from me frightened me into silence again the moon had disappeared from the night and again with a lessened form showed itself while i still remained in the forest my sensations had by this time become distinct and my mind received every day additional ideas my eyes became accustomed to the light and to perceive objects in their right forms I distinguished the insect from the herb, and by degrees one herb from another. I found that the sparrow uttered none but harsh notes, whilst those of the blackbird and thrush were sweet and enticing. One day, when I was oppressed by cold, I found a fire which had been left by some wandering beggars, and was overcome with delight at the warmth I experienced from it. In my joy I thrust my hand into the live embers, but quickly drew it out again with a cry of pain. How strange, I thought, that the same cause should produce such opposite effects. I examined the materials of the fire, and to my joy found it to be composed of wood. I quickly collected some branches, but they were wet and would not burn. I was pained at this, and sat still watching the operation of the fire. The wet wood, which I placed near the heat, dried, and itself became inflamed. I reflected on this, and by touching the various branches, I discovered the cause and busied myself in collecting a great quantity of wood, that I might dry it and have a plentiful supply of firewood. When night came on, and brought sleep with it, I was in the greatest fear lest my fire should be extinguished. I covered it carefully with dry wood and leaves, and placed wet branches upon it, and then spreading my cloak, I lay on the ground and sank into sleep. It was morning when I awoke, and my first care was to visit the fire. I uncovered it, and a gentle breeze quickly fanned it into a flame. I observed this also, and contrived a fan of branches which roused the embers when they were nearly extinguished. When night came again, I found with pleasure that the fire gave light as well as heat, and that the discovery of this element was useful to me in my food, for I found some of the offals that the travelers had left had been roasted, and tasted much more savory than the berries I gathered from the trees. I tried, therefore, to dress my food in the same manner, placing it on live embers. I found that the berries were spoiled by this operation, and the nuts and roots much improved. Food, however, became scarce, and I often spent the whole day searching in vain for a few acorns to assuage the pangs of hunger. When I found this, I resolved to quit the place the had hitherto inhabited, to seek for one where the few wants I experienced would be more easily satisfied. In this emigration, I exceedingly lamented the loss of the fire which I had obtained through accident, and knew not how to reproduce it. I gave several hours to the serious consideration of this difficulty, but I was obliged to relinquish all attempt to supply it, and wrapping myself up in my cloak, I struck across the wood towards the setting sun. I passed three days in these rambles, and at length discovered the open country. A great fall of snow had taken place the night before, and the fields were of one uniform white. The appearance was disconsolate, and I found my feet chilled by the cold, damp substance that covered the ground. It was about seven in the morning, and I longed to obtain food and shelter. At length I perceived a small hut on a rising ground, which had doubtless been built for the convenience of some shepherd. This was a new sight to me, and I examined the structure with great curiosity. Finding the door open, I entered, and an old man sat near a fire, over which he was preparing his breakfast. He turned on, hearing a noise, and, perceiving me, shrieked loudly, and, quitting the hut, ran across the field with a speed of which his debilitated form hardly appeared capable. His appearance, different from any I had ever before seen, and his flight somewhat surprised me, but I was enchanted by the appearance of the hut. Here the snow and rain could not penetrate. The ground was dry, and it presented to me then as exquisite and divine a retreat as pandemonium appeared to the demons of hell after their suffering in the lake of fire. I greedily devoured the remnants of the shepherd's breakfast, which consisted of bread, cheese, milk, and wine. The latter, however, I did not like. Then, overcome by fatigue, I lay down among some straw and fell asleep. It was noon when I awoke, and allured by the warmth of the sun, which shone brightly on the white ground, I determined to recommence my travels, and depositing the remains of the peasant's breakfast in a wallet that I found, I proceeded across the fields for several hours, until at sunset I arrived at a village. How miraculous did this appear! the huts the neater cottages and stately houses engaged my admiration by turns the vegetables in the gardens the milk and cheese that i saw placed on the windows of some of the cottages allured my appetite one of the best of these i entered but i had hardly placed my foot within the door before the children shrieked and one of the women fainted the whole village was roused some fled some attacked me until grievously bruised by stones and many other kinds of missile weapons i escaped to the open country and fearfully took refuge in a low hovel quite bare and making a wretched appearance after the palaces i beheld in the village this hovel however joined a cottage of a neat and pleasant appearance but after my late dearly bought experience i dared not enter it my place of refuge was constructed of wood but so low that i could with difficulty sit upright in it No wood, however, was placed on the earth which formed the floor, but it was dry, and although the wind entered in innumerable chinks, I found it an agreeable asylum from the snow and rain. Here then I retreated and lay down happy to have found a shelter, however miserable, from the inclemency of the season, and still more from the barbarity of man. As soon as morning dawned I crept from my kennel, that I might view the adjacent cottage and discover if I could remain in the habitation I had found. It was situated against the back of the cottage, and surrounded on the sides which were exposed by a pigsty and a clear pool of water. One part was open, and by that I had crept in, but now I covered every crevice by which I might be perceived with stones and wood, yet in such a manner that I might move them on occasion to pass out. All the lights I enjoyed came through the sty, and that was sufficient for me. Having thus arranged my dwelling and carpeted it with clean straw, I retired. Or I saw the figure of a man at a distance, and I remembered too well my treatment the night before to trust myself in his power. I had first, however, provided for my sustenance for the day by a loaf of coarse bread, which I purloined, and a cup with which I could drink more conveniently than from my hand of the pure water which flowed by my retreat. The floor was a little raised so that it was kept perfectly dry, and by its vicinity to the chimney of the cottage, it was tolerably warm. Being thus provided, I resolved to reside in this hovel until something should occur which might alter my determination. It was indeed a paradise compared to the bleak forest my former residence, the rain dropping branches and dank earth. I ate my breakfast with pleasure, and was about to remove a plank to procure myself a little water when I heard a step, and looking through a small chink, I beheld a young creature with a pail on her head passing before my hovel. The girl was young and of gentle demeanour, unlike what I have since found cottagers and farmhouse servants to be yet she was meanly dressed, a coarse blue petticoat and a linen jacket being her own garb. Her fair hair was plaited, but not adorned. She looked patient, yet sad. I lost sight of her, and in a quarter of an hour she returned bearing the pail, which was now partly filled with milk. Seemingly incomod by the burden, a young man met her, whose countenance expressed a deeper despondence. Uttering a few sounds with an air of melancholy, he took the pail from her head and bore it to the cottage himself. She followed, and they disappeared. Presently, I saw the young man again, with some tools in his hand, cross the field behind the cottage, and the girl was also busy, sometimes in the house and sometimes in the yard. I found that one of the windows of the cottage had formerly occupied a part of it, but the panes had been filled up with wood. In one of these was a small and almost imperceptible chink through which the eye could just penetrate. Through this crevice, a small room was visible, whitewashed and clean, but very bare of furniture. In one corner, near a small fire, sat an old man, leaning his head on his hands in a disconsolate attitude. The young girl was occupied in arranging the cottage, but presently she took something out of a drawer, which employed her hands, and she sat down beside the old man, who, taking up an instrument, began to play and to produce sounds sweeter than the voice of the thrush or the nightingale. It was a lovely sight, even to me, poor wretch who had never beheld art-beautiful before. The silver hair and benevolent countenance of the aged cottager won my reverence, while the gentle manners of the girl enticed my love. He played a sweet mournful air which I perceived drew tears from the eyes of his amiable companion, of which the old man took no notice until she sobbed audibly. He then produced a few sounds, and the fair creature leaving her work knelt at his feet. He raised her and smiled with such kindness and affection that I felt sensations of a peculiar and overpowering nature. They were a mixture of pain and pleasure, such as I had never before experienced, either from hunger or cold warmth or food, and I withdrew from the window, unable to bear these emotions. Soon after this the young man entered, bearing on his shoulders a load of wood. The girl met him at the door, helped to relieve him of his burden, and, taking some of the fuel into the cottage, placed it on the fire. Then she and the youth went apart into a nook of the cottage, and he showed her a large loaf and a piece of cheese. She seemed pleased and went into the garden for some roots and plants, which she placed in water and then upon the fire. She afterwards continued her work, whilst the young man went into the garden and appeared busily employed in digging and pulling up roots. After he had been employed thus about an hour, the young woman joined him, and they entered the cottage together. The old man had in the meantime been pensive, but on the appearance of his companions he assumed a more cheerful air, and they sat down to eat. The meal was quickly dispatched. The young woman was again occupied in arranging the cottage. The old man walked before the cottage in the sun for a few minutes, leaning on the arm of the youth. Nothing could exceed in beauty the contrast between these two excellent creatures. One was old, with silver hairs and a countenance beaming with benevolence and love. The younger was slight and graceful in his figure, and his features were moulded with the finest symmetry. Yet his eyes and attitude expressed the utmost sadness and despondency the old man returned to the cottage and the youth with tools different from those he had used in the morning directed his steps across the fields night quickly shut in but to my extreme wonder i found that the cottagers had a means of prolonging light by the use of tapers and was delighted to find that the setting of the sun did not put an end to the pleasure i experienced in watching my human neighbors In the evening the young girl and her companion were employed in various occupations which I did not understand, and the old man again took up the instrument which produced the divine sounds that had enchanted me in the morning. So soon as he had finished, the youth began not to play, but to utter sounds that were monotonous, and neither resembling the harmony of the old man's instrument nor the songs of the birds. I soon found that he read aloud, but at the time I knew nothing of the science of words or letters." The family, after having been thus occupied for a short time, extinguished their lights and retired, as I conjectured, to rest. Chapter 12 I lay on my straw, but I could not sleep. I thought of the occurrences of the day. What chiefly struck me was the gentle manners of these people, and I longed to join them, but dared not. I remembered too well the treatment I suffered the night before from the barbarous villagers, and resolved, whatever course of conduct I might hereafter think it right to pursue, that for the present I would remain quietly in my hovel, watching and endeavouring to discover the motives which influenced their actions. The cottagers arose the next morning before the sun. The young woman arranged the cottage and prepared the food, and the young departed after the first meal. This day was passed in the same routine as that which preceded it, The young man was constantly employed out of doors, and the girl in various laborious occupations within. The old man, whom I soon perceived to be blind, employed his leisure hours, on his instrument or in contemplation. Nothing could exceed the love and respect which the younger cottagers exhibited towards their venerable companion. They performed towards him every little office of affection and duty with gentleness, and he rewarded them by his benevolent smiles. They were not entirely happy. The young man and his companion often went apart and appeared to weep. I saw no cause for their unhappiness, but I was deeply affected by it. If such lovely creatures were miserable, it was less strange that I, an imperfect and solitary being, should be wretched. Yet why were these gentle beings unhappy? They possessed a delightful house, for such it was in my eyes, and every luxury. They had a fire to warm them when chill, and delicious viands when hungry." They were dressed in excellent clothes, and still more they enjoyed one another's company and in speech, interchanging each day looks of affection and kindness. What did their tears imply? Did they really express pain? I was at first unable to solve these questions, but perpetual attention and time explained to me many appearances which were first enigmatic. A considerable period elapsed before I discovered one of the causes of the uneasiness of this amiable family. It was poverty, and they suffered that evil in a very distressing degree. Their nourishment consisted entirely of the vegetables of their garden, and the milk of one cow, which gave very little during the winter, when its masters could scarcely procure food to support it. They often, I believe, suffered the pangs of hunger very poignantly, especially the two younger cottagers, for several times they placed food before the old man when they reserved none for themselves. This trait of kindness moved me sensibly." I had been accustomed during the night to steal a part of their store from my own consumption, but when I found that in doing this I inflicted pain on the cottages, I abstained and satisfied myself with berries, nuts, and roots which I gathered from a neighboring wood. I discovered also another means through which I was enabled to assist their labors. I found that the youth spent a great part of each day in collecting wood for the family fire, and during the night I often took his tools, the use of which I quickly discovered, and brought home firing sufficient for the consumption of several days." I remember the first time that I did this, the young woman, when she opened the door in the morning, appeared greatly astonished on seeing a great pile of wood on the outside. She uttered some words in a loud voice, and the youth joined her, who also expressed surprise. I observed with pleasure that he did not go to the forest that day, but spent it in repairing the cottage and cultivating the garden. By degrees, I made a discovery of still greater moment. I found that these people possessed a method of communicating their experience and feelings to one another by articulate sounds. I perceived that the words they spoke sometimes produced pleasure or pain, smiles or sadness, in the minds and countenances of the hearers. This was indeed a godlike science, and I ardently desired to be acquainted with it, but I was baffled in every attempt I made for this purpose. Their pronunciation was quick, and the words they uttered, not having any apparent connection with visible objects, I was unable to discover any clue by which I could unravel the mystery of their reference. By great application, however, and after having remained during the space of several revolutions of the moon in my hovel, I discovered the names that were given to some of the most familiar objects of discourse. I learned and applied the words fire, milk, bread, and wood. I learned also the names of the cottagers themselves. The youth and his companion had each of them several names, but the old man had only one, which was father. The girl was called sister, or Agatha, and the youth Felix, brother, or son. I cannot describe the delight I felt when I learned the ideas appropriated to each of these sounds, and was able to pronounce them. I distinguished several other words without being able as yet to understand or apply them, such as good, dearest, unhappy. I spent the winter in this manner. The gentle manners and beauty of the cottagers greatly endeared them to me. When they were unhappy, I felt depressed. When they rejoiced, I sympathized in their joys." I saw a few human beings besides them, and if any other happened to enter the cottage, their harsh manners and rude gait only enhanced to me the superior accomplishments of my friends. The old man, I could perceive, often endeavoured to encourage his children, as sometimes I found that he called them to cast off their melancholy. He would talk in a cheerful accent, with an expression of goodness that bestowed pleasure even upon me. Agatha listened with respect, her eyes sometimes filled with tears, which she endeavoured to wipe away unperceived. "'but I generally found that her countenance and tone were more cheerful "'after having listened to the exhortations of her father. "'It was not thus with Felix. "'He was always the saddest of the group, and even to my unpractised senses "'he appeared to have suffered more deeply than his friends. "'But if his countenance was more sorrowful, "'his voice was more cheerful than that of his sister, "'especially when he addressed the old man. "'I could mention innumerable instances which, although slight, "'mark the dispositions of these amiable cottagers,' In the midst of poverty and want, Felix carried with pleasure to his sister the first little white flower that peeped out from beneath the snowy ground. Early in the morning, before she had risen, he cleared away the snow that obstructed her path to the milk-house, drew water from the well, and brought the wood from the outhouse, where, to his perpetual astonishment, he found his store always replenished by an invisible hand. In the day, I believe, he worked sometimes for a neighbouring farmer, because he often went forth and did not return until dinner, yet brought no wood with him. At other times he worked in the garden, but as there was little to do in the frosty season, he read to the old man and Agatha. His reading had puzzled me extremely at first, but by degrees I discovered that he uttered many of the same sounds when he read as when he talked. I conjectured, therefore, that he found on the paper signs for speech which he understood, and I ardently longed to comprehend these also. But how was that possible when I did not even understand the sounds for which they stood as signs? I improved, however, sensibly in this science, but not sufficiently to follow up any kind of conversation, although I plied my whole mind to the endeavour, for I easily perceived that, although I eagerly longed to discover myself to the cottagers, I ought not to make the attempt until I had first become master of their language, which knowledge might enable me to make them overlook the deformity of my figure, for with this also the contrast perpetually presented to my eyes had made me acquainted.' I had admired the perfect forms of my cottages, the grace, beauty, and delicate complexions. But how was I terrified when I viewed myself in a transparent pool? At first I started back, unable to believe that it was indeed I who was reflected in the mirror. And when I became fully convinced that I was in reality the monster that I am, I was filled with the bitterest sensations of despondence and mortification. Alas, I did not yet entirely know the fatal effects of this miserable deformity as the sun became warmer and the light of day longer the snow vanished and i beheld the bare trees and black earth from this time felix was more employed and the hard-moving indications of impending famine disappeared their food as i afterwards found was coarse but it was wholesome and they procured a sufficiency of it several new kinds of plants sprang up in the garden which they dressed and these signs of comfort increased daily as the season advanced the old man, leaning on his son, walked each day at noon when it did not rain, as I found it was cold when the heavens poured forth its waters. This frequently took place, but a high wind quickly dried the earth, and the season became far more pleasant than it had been. My mode of life in my hovel was uniform. During the morning I attended the motions of the cottagers, and when they disappeared in various occupations, I slept. The remainder of the day was spent in observing my friends. When they had retired to rest, if there was any moon or the night was starlight, I went into the woods and collected my own food and fuel for the cottage. When I returned, as often as it was necessary, I cleared these paths from the snow and performed those offices that I had seen done by Felix. I afterwards found that these labours, performed by an invisible hand, greatly astonished them, and once or twice I heard them, on these occasions, utter the words, "'Good Spirit, Wonderful,' but I did not then understand the signification of these terms." My thoughts were now more active, and I longed to discover the motives and feelings of these lovely creatures. I was inquisitive to know why Felix appeared so miserable and Agatha so sad. I thought, foolish wretch, that it might be in my power to restore happiness to these deserving people. When I slept or was absent, the forms of the venerable blind father, the gentle Agatha, and the excellent Felix flitted before me. I looked upon them as superior beings who would be the arbiters of my future destiny, I formed in my imagination a thousand pictures of presenting myself to them in their reception of me. I imagined that they would be disgusted, until, by my gentle demeanor and conciliating words, I should first win their favor and afterwards their love. These thoughts exhilarated me and led me to apply with fresh ardor to the acquiring of the art of language. My organs were indeed harsh but supple, and although my voice was very unlike the soft music of their tones, yet I pronounced such words as I understood with tolerable ease— It was as the ass and the lapdog, yet surely the gentle ass whose intentions were affectionate, although whose manners were rude, deserve better treatment than blows and execration. Pleasant showers and genial warmth of spring greatly altered the aspect of the earth. Men who before this change seemed to have been hid in caves dispersed themselves and were employed in various arts of cultivation. The birds sang in more cheerful notes, and the leaves began to bud forth on the trees. Happy, happy earth fit habitation for gods which so short a time before was bleak damp and unwholesome my spirits were elevated by the enchanting appearance of nature the past was blotted from my memory the present was tranquil and the future gilded by bright
0: rays of hope and anticipations of joy thanks so much for listening today i so appreciate your support tune in next week to find out what happens next and remember if you enjoy the podcast you can pay us the highest compliment by just telling a friend